Well, I want to invite you to please open up your Bibles to Mark chapter 10. And we're going to continue a study that we started last week, the second part of a message. And you'll notice that the title remains unchanged, which is wealth, a shocking threat to your soul. And the points in the outline are the same as well. And oftentimes at the beginning of a message, I'll share something intriguing or something to capture your attention. But if that title alone isn't enough to uh, draw you in, I don't know what will be. Wealth, a shocking threat to your soul. And our passage comes right after our Lord's interaction with a man who's identified as the rich young ruler. He was extremely wealthy. He had religious credentials and more than likely was a leader in the synagogue or a synagogue official. Yet when Jesus interacted with him, the Lord exposed that his heart and allegiance wasn't willing to give up his wealth and his status and to come follow Jesus. Now Jesus has turned his attention to his disciples and he's going to help them understand why he shared what he shared with the rich young ruler. Our study has us looking at why and what actually the Lord shared and we narrowed our focus to four takeaways after our Lord's interaction with the rich young ruler, so that you and I see why wealth and materialism pose a great threat to our souls. Our first takeaway had you and I recognize the danger of wealth. And we spent our entire message last Sunday on this very first point. And we surveyed several scriptures sharing the dangers that a love and longing for riches can pose. We kept the subpoints under point one in there for you. A love of money threatens your faith in God. We had an opportunity to look at 1 Timothy 6, 9, and 10, which provide a sobering admonition to those who want to get rich when it shares that such a person falls into temptation and a snare and many foolish and harmful desires which plunge men into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all sorts of evil. And some, by longing for it, have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. In the end, the rich young ruler was pierced with many griefs as he wasn't willing to relinquish his allegiance to his wealth and to follow Jesus in faith. Next, we recognize that a love of money threatens your dependency upon God. Wealth, as you know, can actually promote independence as a person trusts trusts in their riches for their security. Their heart turns to wealth rather than to the Lord. And we need to heed the admonition that comes in Psalm 52, verse 7. Behold the man who would not make God his refuge, but trusted in the abundance of his riches and was strong in his evil desire. We also looked at the wisdom of of Agur in Proverbs 30, 7 through 9, as he pled with God to keep deceit and lies far from him and to be granted neither poverty nor riches so that he would stay completely dependent upon the Lord. And finally, under our first point, we recognize that a love of money threatens our allegiance and service to God. In Matthew six twenty four. Jesus makes it perfectly clear that a person cannot serve both God and money. Their allegiance is going to be divided. You have to be all in for the Lord. 
Again, this is what the rich, young ruler was unwilling to be and to surrender his allegiance. So he does, in the end, walk away grieving. His heart was exposed, and he was unwilling to surrender his allegiance to his wealth and to follow Christ in faith. And even believers must recognize the ongoing threat that wealth poses. It was John Wesley who once said, Money never stays with me. It would burn me if it did. I throw it out of my hands as soon as possible, lest it should find its way into my heart. End quote. That's a strong, strong quote. Even as a believer, Wesley recognized the threat that money posed to, to his own heart. That it, that it could threaten his faith. It could threaten his dependency. It could threaten his service and his allegiance to God. And so he made a decision that he was going to put it far away from him. In the end, we recognized a lot about the danger of wealth. What are the other takeaways that this passage has for us? And what other ways is this text going to challenge our hearts this morning? Let's read it again, get reacquainted with it, and continue our study. Mark 10, 23-31 says this, And Jesus, looking around, said to his disciples, How hard it will be for those who are wealthy to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples were amazed at his words. But Jesus answered again and said to them, Children, how hard it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. They were even more astonished and said to him, Then who can be saved? And looking at them, Jesus said, With people it is impossible, but not with God, for all things are possible with God. Peter began to say to him, Behold, we have left everything and followed you. Jesus said, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or farms for my sake and for the gospel's sake, but that he will receive a hundred times as much now in the present age, houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and farms, along with persecutions, and in the age to come, eternal life. But many who are first will be last, and the last first. Well, we have covered our first takeaway extensively, and now it's time to shift gears to our second one, which is this. Don't confuse retribution for redemption. There's an important theological and contextual backdrop to this story that we need to understand. It's impacting the way that the disciples are thinking, and we need to to see what it is. It's related to the principle of retribution, which has been defined this way. The principle that the righteous will prosper and the wicked will suffer in direct proportion to their actions. An example of a retributive statement is the righteous prosper and the wicked suffer. And this statement encapsulates the view of reward and punishment that was commonly held in the ancient world. There are principles that, if you're aware, that that continue in our culture today of what we would call a a retribution theology, right? It's almost like this karma-like experience, which depends on how you 
treat or mistreat others. Not only was the ancient world influenced and vulnerable to this, but Israel was no different. Question for you. Is the principle of retribution biblical? Hmm. Trick question, by the way. Let it out of the bag. Trick question. Because it all depends on how it's defined and how it is applied. For example, the book of Proverbs contains examples of different types of retribution. In some Proverbs, the Lord is the active participant who brings about both punishment or reward like in Proverbs 10.3 and 10.27, I want to read them for you. don't need to turn there. Proverbs 10.3 says, The Lord will not allow the righteous to hunger, but he will reject the craving of the wicked. Proverbs 10.27, The Lord, excuse me, the fear of the Lord prolongs life, but the years of the wicked will be shortened. We understand what Proverbs are. They're general truths, Right? And these are general truths when it comes to retribution. But where people get in trouble is when they propose hard lines in the sand, when they draw hard lines in the sand, and, and they, they apply it in such a way that the, the, the principle actually sounds like what I shared before, which was common in the ancient world. The principle that the righteous will suffer and the wicked will suffer in direct proportion to their actions, which isn't always the case. And we need not look further than the book of Job, right? Job's suffering was not directly proportionate to his actions. And the purpose of the book actually helps us understand God's sovereignty in suffering, which accomplishes his greater purposes. Sometimes righteous people suffer. And sometimes it appears that the unrighteous are very fortunate. We see that happening all the time in our world. And it was Job's friends that proposed that Job's suffering must be some form of retribution, right? That was the counsel that they came up to give him. And I find it fascinating that the principle of retribution has been something that has stood uh, and gone all the way back in the oldest book in the Bible, right? The, the, the book of Job addresses it. I thought that was so amazing. And we see Jesus addressing this misconception of retribution in John chapter 9 with the man who was born blind. His disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he would be born blind? Jesus answered, It was neither that this man sinned nor his parents, but it was so that the works of God might be displayed in him. See how the retribution theology wasn't aligning. It doesn't align with, with God's purposes. The distorted idea of retribution was so prevalent that it began to invade the Pharisees' thinking and it began to align, if you will, or to reinforce the external righteousness of their religion. Wealth, in many ways, was considered the ultimate form of retribution. And over time, what happened is they even developed this view of the poor that they were what? They were cursed. They were being punished by God. Money also enabled the religious elite to buy the best animal sacrifices. And so there was this even greater misconception related to retribution and that their righteousness was somehow a better or a more superior righteousness because 
Naboth, the, the most unblemished, the, the pure, spotless uh, sacrifice, right? And so this line begins to get blurred between retribution and redemption. Over time, the Pharisees began to associate retribution with redemption. And by redemption, I mean someone being saved or justified before God. The rich young ruler was a poster boy for redemption from a pharisaical standpoint. He, had, he led a moral life. All, all the ducks were in a row. All the I's dotted and the T's crossed. His life was blessed. He also had great financial wealth and properties. And then you add to the fact that he is young, now he's, he's way ahead of the game. He's way ahead of the religious curve. I don't know. You know, just as I, as I think about it, um, well, let's, let's uh, take a closer look and see what the disciples' response is, right? So they, they see this man, they see everything lining up according to retribution theology, and this is why the disciples are going to respond the way that they do. Look at verse 26 with me. They were even more astonished and said to him, then who can be saved? The Lord's admonition about the wealthy totally contradicted their retribution theology and it turned their world upside down. And we can be certain that it totally took the rich young ruler by surprise as well. I don't know the heart of the rich young ruler and why he came to the Lord, but if I were to guess, when he came to Jesus, just thinking that he was a rabbi, and he was approaching a, a rabbi and saying, what must I do to inherit eternal life? You know what I thought he was going to hear back in return? Man, you're doing a great job. Just, just keep it up. Just get a pat on the back. Just keep doing what you're doing. Instead, Jesus revealed that his faith wasn't real. And that it was actually self-serving and not God-serving. That the allegiance of his heart wasn't even connected to, to God's work. And the takeaway for us is to make sure that we don't confuse retribution for redemption either. That somehow our righteous standing before God is um, constantly in flux depending on how much I do or how much I give or how many blessings I have in my life. That is how we can become vulnerable to a, a, a retribution theology. I shared this story before about a Catholic priest who went on Larry King Live and he was sitting there with some other religious leaders and Larry King was going around to, to each person and asked him if they believed that they were going to heaven. Or if I can frame it in, the, in a question form of what the rich young ruler asked, do, do, what must I do to obtain eternal life? And Larry King asked him, do you, do you believe that you're going to heaven? And the Catholic priest responded and he said, of course. And he says, well, why do you believe that? He says, I've been a priest for over 30 years. That was his response. You know what that is? Retribution theology, right there. He's, he's, he's believing that there will be retribution. There's a false understanding and a misapplication of retribution. And any works-based religion is driven by an errant retribution theology. 
the health, wealth, and prosperity gospel. Many, uh, some in our church are familiar with it, but many are not. It, 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 it's, it's rampant uh, in other parts of the world because people do have a desire to have money and, and, and have wealth. And so it teaches basically if you sow a seed of faith financially, that God in return is going to bless that seed uh, of faith and, and allow you to prosper financially. Or if you sow a financial seed um, in faith, then he'll answer your prayer and give you the physical healing that you so desperately long for. Again, a false understanding and misapplication of retribution. The true biblical gospel always boils down to redemption, not retribution. And they cannot be confused. Redemption cannot be earned. Redemption cannot be bought. And this leads us to the third takeaway in our passage. Trust God completely to save you through faith. And here Christ's answer to their question comes to the rescue. Look at verse 27 with me. Looking at them, Jesus said, with people it is impossible, but not with God. For all things are possible with God. Now this verse gets used out of context a lot. Right? It does. Some people think that, that God's never going to do anything that's going to contradict his nature. Right? And so you, you can't take this verse and say, well... Um, all things are possible with God. Not exactly true. Um, it's impossible for him to do something that's going to compromise or contradict his holiness and his other attributes. Okay? Jesus wants them to see the folly of riches and the threat that trusting in riches poses. With people, it is impossible. Jesus is trying to help them understand that everyone must file for spiritual bankruptcy. And that it's going to be especially difficult for those who are rich. Why? Because they take great stock in their wealth. They believe that they can always buy whatever it is that they need. And they truly don't understand the cost of redemption. And my heart was so encouraged because I came across uh, a scripture that I, I never really identified or, 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 or connected um, with, with the, the reality of redemption. And it's in Psalm 49, and I want to invite you to turn there so you can see it. I share some great insights for us. The context of this psalm focuses on the folly of trusting in riches, which aligns perfectly with our passage here in Mark 10. And this is what it says, starting in verse 1. Hear this, all peoples. Give ear, all inhabitants of the world. Okay, it's a call to everyone. Hear this, both low and high, rich and poor together. No one's excluded. My mouth will speak wisdom and the meditation of my heart will be understanding. I will incline my ear to a proverb. I will express my riddle on the harp. Why should I fear in days of adversity when the iniquity of my foes surrounds me? Even those who trust in their wealth and boast in the abundance of their riches. That's exactly what the rich do. Verses 7 through 9 lay it all on the line. And, and we need to just zero in on these and take these to heart. They're amazing. Listen to this in verse 7. 
No man can by any means redeem his brother or give to God a ransom for him. Wow. No man. For brother or for self, man for man, it cannot be done. For the redemption of his soul is costly and he should cease trying forever. Stop trying. Psalm 46.10. Be still and know that I'm God. Actually, um, it's cease striving and know that I am God. In Psalm 46.10. Verse 9. That he should live on eternally, that he should not undergo decay. And I want you to notice the strong language of verse 7. No man can by any means, not with money, not by works, not by any means, redeem his brother. And we're talking about spiritual redemption. You cannot make a deal with God, parents, um, if you do certain things and somehow you'll be able to save uh, your, your children. There, you have siblings in your family. You, you cannot make their profession of faith for them. No man can do that. Another point of application for us. Principle of application. In other words, with people, it is impossible. Why? Verse 8. The redemption of the soul is costly. It cannot be covered by human means. And mankind should cease striving forever. So how is it possible? How then is it possible? Look down at verse 15. But God will redeem my soul from the power of Sheol, for He will receive me. The Hebrew verb translated will redeem me also means to ransom, to purchase, or buy out. And this language, of course, foreshadows the gospel. And we see ransom used in the infamous verse of Mark 10.45, for even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. And you're a well-taught group, so you already know that this term, ransom, is, was commonly used within the slave industry. And it means a price of release for someone controlled by another. With man, it is impossible to be ransomed spiritually. Psalm 49 makes it clear. Mankind doesn't have the divine currency necessary to purchase the soul. It is too costly and we shouldn't even try. The only thing that we can do for this situation is do what we can do in life. When you have an impossible debt that cannot be paid, what do people do? File for bankruptcy, right? And spiritually, the same thing. There's no way that that debt can be paid off. We must file for bankruptcy and recognize that we cannot pay the debt that we owe. With God, however, all things are possible. It is possible to be ransomed. Jesus Christ will pay the impossible debt and Jesus is pointing his disciples right now to this redemptive reality that again, he's going to feature for us in the passage. If you go back to Mark chapter 10, right after his interaction with the disciples following the rich young ruler, he's going to predict his passion again for the third time in Mark's gospel. 
With God, all things are possible. He alone gives new hearts and new allegiances to those who trust completely in God to save them through faith. The wealthy who are enslaved to their riches and pursuit of wealth can be ransomed and released from their bondage. Salvation is possible through God. And this is the point that Jesus is making. And this is the gospel. This is gospel language. Trusting in Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord. He is Savior because He redeems us and ransoms us and frees a person from enslavement to their sin. From the penalty of their sin and their enslavement to serving sin. He is Lord because He changes the allegiance of a person's heart to serve Him rather than serving the things of this world or serving self. Has Christ released you from your debt of sin? My friend, has Christ released you from your debt of sin? Do you know the realness of His forgiveness for your sins? Has He led you to continually confess, not one time, but to continually confess your spiritual bankruptcy? That's the mark of a converted heart. We come regularly and we just know we can never, ever, ever do it on our own. And that's the difference between the world and the works righteousness that just keeps trying and striving and striving and striving. But the converted heart comes bankrupt. Has He given you a new heart? Has He given you a new allegiance to serve Him and to live for His glory? Oh dear friend, don't leave. Don't leave today until this is reconciled and you are convinced in your heart of hearts that you know God and He is your Savior and Lord. And sometimes we can hear the gospel preached so much that we can become desensitized to it. And if your heart gets hardened, right, that, 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 that's worrisome too, right? Because we, we, we celebrate this in our lives. We celebrate this reality. Make sure your heart is settled with the Lord of the universe. And make sure that payment has been, and it has been, made for you in full if you will turn and trust in Christ and that you're completely committed to walk in newness of life. Not only does Christ want you to trust God completely to save you through faith, but He wants, to, wants you to see that if you follow Him faithfully, your reward will be great, which leads us to our fourth and final takeaway. First, we needed to recognize the danger of wealth. Secondly, don't confuse retribution for redemption. Thirdly, trust God completely to save you through faith. And number four, follow the Lord faithfully and your reward will be great. Look at verse 28. Peter began to say to him, Behold, we have left everything and followed you. Stop here for a moment. Some people believe that this is an attempt on Peter's part at self-justification. But I don't think so, and I'll share, I'll share why. Uh, first of all, he, he asked the question in the plural form, right? He says, he's, he's not asking it from him. He didn't say, Lord, I've, I've done all this stuff. 
He, he's asking it from, from the group's perspective. Okay? And it was common, we know this, for Peter to be the spokesman for the, for the disciples. And the word translated behold sets up a contrast between the rich young ruler and the disciples. And in modern English, we don't use behold very often. At least I don't. Maybe you do at home. You walk around. Behold, kids, it's time for dinner. <laughs> behold, honey, we need to get in the car and get to church. No, we don't use it. Um, we, we use the word but, okay? It's, it's, it, that's the way how we draw a contrast. And, and if Peter were to put this in our modern tongue, he would say, but Lord, we have left everything and followed you. In the parallel account in Matthew 19, 27, Peter is recorded asking a question, what then will there be for us? And we have to think about this for a moment. They have been following the Lord Jesus Christ for the last three years at this point. It's close to three years. And so personally, I don't think this is an attempt of self-justification on Peter's part or, or the disciples' part, but Peter is simply seeking the Lord's app affirmation for the significance of what they have been doing. Peter is basically asking, is, is this all for nothing? Is this all for nothing? And I think if we're honest with ourselves, sometimes our own hearts struggle to see the Lord's purposes behind some of the suffering and sacrifices that we make, that when we're, we're following the Lord, we can be tempted to lose heart. We need encouragement. We do. I know my heart does. And I know I'm not alone. We need encouragement. And this is exactly what the Lord provides. Look at verses 29 and 30. And Jesus said, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or farms for my sake and for the gospel's sake, but that he will receive a hundred times as much now in the present age. And he wanted to make sure that we're talking about the same thing, and he repeats the list again. Houses, brothers, sisters, mothers, and children, and farms. Sorry, fathers, you didn't make the list the second time. But we get the point. He's, he, he, he's saying that he I recognizes that there is a cost. And I want you to also notice that he says, along with persecutions and in the age to come, eternal life. Jesus responds to Peter's question in Matthew and his contrast in Mark 10. And he, he wants him to know that God sees, records, and rewards every sacrifice that they're making. He doesn't forget This word reminds, uh, uh, reminds us of this in, in Hebrews 6.10, which is one of my favorite verses in, in the Bible that says, for God is not unjust. You hear this, church? We got to hear this. This is so encouraging. For God is not unjust so as to forget your work. Whose work? Your work. God will not forget your work. Everything that you do for him, he will, he will not forget it. He is recording it. And the love. See how those two come together? 
I didn't have time to look it up, but sometimes there's a, a chiastic structure in the, in, in, in the Greek that, that equates things. And uh, it'd be interesting to see if it's there, if it, work and love, they're, they're, they're connected, right? As a believer, you know, begrudgingly, oh, I'm going to go serve over there in children's ministries. Oh, right? It's, there's, it's, it's out of a genuine desire. It's, there, there, there's love. Listen, which you have shown towards his name in having ministered and in still ministering to the saints. Let me read it again. For God is not unjust so as to forget your work and the love which you have shown toward his name in having ministered and in still ministering to the saints. It's true. He doesn't forget. And Jesus tells them that what they've walked away from might seem like a lot to them. But God has far more in their future than they have left in their past. And I want you to think about this practically and how the Lord provided for the disciples as they were sent out for Jesus' sake and for the sake of the gospel. Each disciple left one house, yet God opened hundreds of homes for them to stay in. Each disciple left one family, yet God made them part of a family that encompassed the world. Some may have been separated from earthly brothers or sisters, yet God gave them more brothers and sisters in Christ than they could imagine. And the point is clear. Those who willingly turn loose of this world to follow Jesus will discover that God has far more in store for them than the sum total of all that we left behind. Amen? He does. He does. J.C. Ryle shares this. Wouldn't be a sermon if Pastor John didn't quote some Ryle, would it? <laughs> Sorry, here we go again. J.C. Ryle, so clear, so, so encouraging. There are few wider promises than this in the Word of God. There is none, certainly, in the New Testament which holds out such encouragement for the life and the present. Let everyone that is fearful and faint-hearted in Christ's service look at this promise. Let all who are enduring hardness and tribulation for Christ's sake Study this promise well and drink out of it comfort. Now listen to what he shares. To all who make sacrifices on account of the gospel, Jesus promises a hundredfold now in this time. They shall not only have pardon and glory in the world to come, they shall even here upon earth have hopes, joys, and sensible comforts sufficient to make up for all that they lose. They shall find in the communion of saints new friends, new relations, new companions, more loving, faithful, and valuable than any they had before their conversion. Their introduction into the family of God shall be an abundant recompense for exclusion from the society of this world. This may sound startling and incredible to many ears, but thousands have found by experience that it's true. End quote. And this is the blessing of the church. This is the blessing of the family of God. We gain spiritual mothers and fathers. We gain spiritual brothers and sisters. We share our homes with one another. We share our burdens with one another. We share our fears with one another. 
We do, and this is the, the life breath of, of the church. And, and maybe, just maybe, that hasn't been your experience in the church, right? We, we can keep people at an arm's length. And, and God's blessing of the church, He wants you to put your arm down. He wants you to draw near to those He's given access to, those who are sitting to your left and to your right right now in these church seats. And He wants you to share your life and to, to get to know. And He wants us to walk and learn and grow together. This is honestly when it, when it comes to the reward of, of following Christ, the church is, is the greatest gift, right? And oh, that poor person that, that trusts in Christ and they, they claim that they're a follower of Christ, but they're far removed from the church and they have no idea the reward that they're missing out. Their burdens they, they carry alone. Their fears they carry alone. The shame and guilt that they feel sometimes because we're pathetic and we sin and so we constantly need to be reminded that we're, we're new creations, that God has made us new, that we're alive in Christ, right? They don't have access to people in the fellowship. It's the church. It's the church. It's our church. I'm so thankful well, notice that Jesus is also realistic about our Christian lives. There will be persecutions according to verse 30. And this had significant meaning for those who were um, being addressed in Mark's gospel who were suffering under Nero's persecution in Rome. These believers were being fed to the lions in, in the arena. They were being falsely imprisoned. They were being uh, tortured and persecuted, martyred for the sake of Christ and the sake of the gospel. Many who forsook their allegiance to Rome were forsaken by their families. So just think about that. They're going to follow Christ. They're all in for the Lord. Their allegiance is no longer to new ungodly things that Rome might even require them to do, like kill Christians in the arena. And now their family cast them out. Boy, do you think the church took on some significant meaning for them during that time? It did. It certainly sheds more light on the encouragement that Jesus shares about God's family in our passage. And it's through trials and persecutions that new relationships and, and members as members of the Christian community that's where they develop, right? It's, you ever notice this in life? When, when adversity comes, when it's hard, you end up connecting with who? The people that you're closest to, right? Sharing the burden. And that the difficulties of life, usually within the body of Christ, they, they, they have us draw together. They do. And to some degree, it's hard for us to appreciate the Lord's provision through the church because many of us aren't being persecuted greatly for the sake of Christ and the gospel. 
And uh, again, this is an encouragement for, for us. I don't want to I don't want to uh, take away from that. We might face some trials of life together. It happens. We've had that happen recently, the, the death of a loved one, right? And we come together and the prayers and the faith of other believers um, up, upholds us and we're encouraged by that. Illnesses in our family, right? We're, we're upheld by the, the prayers and the support that come through that. Financial hardships, and on and on the, the list goes. And we're blessed as a church family to have each other to rely upon. And this is what the church is for. And the family of God is there for such a time as that. Yet we should also take great comfort that God has specifically provided our church family to draw near to each other because of persecution for the sake of following Christ and the gospel. That's, that's a big one. I have a question for you. Are we a persecuted church? Are we a persecuted church? Is the world around us persecuting us because of our boldness of faith in the Lord Jesus Christ because we're constantly calling them to faith and repentance and to discipleship. How will you and I be persecuted in 2017? Think about that question. Is following Christ going to cost you something this year? And you, you guys know I love you. This is not some guilt trip. I am actually talking to my own heart. This is a shepherding moment for my own heart because I need to reflect upon this reality myself and, and really consider, is my allegiance to Christ and the gospel? And am I doing, as Paul wonderfully exhorted us, Right, all things for the sake of the gospel so that we could become a fellow partaker of it, so that we could taste and eat the fruit that comes, that, that is born. And I realize that this is a sobering way to end the message, but our Lord ends this passage with a sobering verse as well, as we're about to see. After giving the disciples encouragement in verses 29 and 30, he finishes with a sobering reminder. Look at verse 31. He says, But many who are first will be last, and the last first. And some believe that Jesus is speaking to laborers in the kingdom of God in this verse, and that the emphasis is on equality. And the reason that they arrive at that conclusion is because in the parallel account with the rich young ruler back in Matthew 19, in the next uh, passage, in Matthew 20 is, um, is this parable uh, about, about people in the vineyards who work for different, uh, different amount of time, for different uh, amount of work, and yet they all receive the same pay. And Jesus finished by saying the same thing. So the last shall be first and the first last in Matthew 20, 16. And this is a viable view if you merge those contexts together. And I agree with some commentators who believe that Jesus probably said it on more than one occasion. 
and it may have lent itself to different application according to the context. In Matthew 20.10, it does lend itself to equality. But here in Mark 10, I believe it refers to the future when God will evaluate the lies of everyone and human values will be reversed. At, the, at that time, those who had rank in this life, those who had wealth, position, and power while on earth will no longer have them. They'll finish last. But those who followed Christ faithfully and who forsook the things of this world, who appear to be last according to the world's standard, will actually be first in God's eyes. As one commentator shares, in eternity the rich and the powerful will have the tables turned on them. Allow me to close our time and our study with these words from J.C. Ryle about this passage. Hear this church. To all who make sacrifices on account of the gospel, Jesus promises eternal life in the world to come. As soon as they put off their earthly tabernacle, they shall enter upon a glorious existence and in the morning of the resurrection shall receive such honor and joy surpassing man's understanding. Their light afflictions for a few years shall end in an everlasting reward. Their fights and sorrows while in the body shall be exchanged for perfect rest and a conqueror's crown. They shall dwell in a world where there is no death, no sin, no devil, no cares, no weeping, no parting, for the former things will have passed away. God has said it, and it shall be found true. Amen. Amen. And I thought that be an encouragement to you. An encouragement, right? And, and, and Paul, when he, when he wrote the Corinthians, and described it as momentary light affliction. And I know sometimes when you're going through it, it doesn't seem so light. That's why we've got to come back to the perspective of the reward. Why? Because it will help us see that in the end, compared to what we receive, compared to the blessing, it is light, isn't it? It is. Pray with me. Father, you have allowed us to take away so much from our study in this passage. I pray Lord, that you would continue to allow these exhortations that we've received, these takeaways to resonate within our hearts. I know my own heart was challenged last week as I just even considered the dangers of, of living in the richest nation in the world and the material culture that uh, surrounds and tempts and, and draws me away from a spiritual focus. Thank you for the encouragement that you provided for us this week. We know that our redemption isn't based on retribution, but it's because of Christ and we get to celebrate that and how fitting that we're going to enjoy communion second hour as we remember uh, the ransom, as we remember the price that was paid on our behalf. And Lord, I want to follow you faithfully. I want to follow you faithfully. And I know many, many in our church do. And I confess the times where I, I've not been faithful. 
the times where the fear of man has overcome, where I've not shared the gospel with my neighbors, I've not reached out in love. I have been a man pleaser. I have um, been focused on the wrong things. Help us to be bold. Help us to make a stand for Christ and his glory. Especially in this new year. And how fitting that we're right at the beginning of a new year. There's no better time than right now for us as a church family to consider how we might be persecuted for Christ's sake and the gospel's sake than at this moment. And lead us. Take us by the hand. We're children. We need you to lead us, Father. We pray for that, that you'll lead us to the place where we will take bold stands for you, especially in a country with so much division, so much strife, so much inequality, divisiveness. In many ways, we feel like we're just circling the drain, about to get sucked down. And yet, if we look to you, we can be catalysts of hope. Oh, how ripe our country is for the gospel. For them not to put their hope in the things of this world, in the government, in social security, in job security, in financial security of any form, but to, to be totally secure in you and know that nothing can threaten the investments that we make for your namesake. Thank you, Father, for being faithful to do that work in our hearts. And we pray that you'll allow this message to continue to resonate with us. We commit second hour to you. We look forward to communion. We look forward to our interaction with the Macklers. And we just pray that you also bless our lunch afterward as well. We commit it all to you, giving you thanks in Jesus' name. Amen.